this is Clayton Collins, the CEO at Housing Wire. I cannot believe we've made it here. Episode 15 of season one of Housing News, the season finale. This is a special episode, and it's not just because it's the season finale. It's not just because we're recording this episode on a bunch of fancy new podcast gear. Big thanks to Jason Frazier for the recommendations, though. The real reason this is a special episode is because we have an unbelievable guest. He's one of the smartest leaders in the housing economy. Today's guest is the chief economist and one of the most important institutions in housing finance, an institution he does as the intel inside of mortgage loans. But before we get into the episode, I have a message from our season one sponsor, Blend. Blend is a digital mortgage platform that streamlines the loan process with an efficient, secure, and transparent customer experience. Blend powers industry-leading teams at some of the nation's largest lenders, as well as regionally focused credit unions and community banks. Blend helps lenders process over $1 billion in loans daily, and every Blend partnership is benchmarked on delivering a truly exceptional customer experience. To learn more about Blend, visit blend.com. And a a message back to Blend from the the whole Housing Wire team, a big thank you for being our launch partner for season one of the Housing News Podcast. Right now, we're getting ready to launch season two in late September, and we're working to identify new sponsors for our second season. If you or your organization are interested in sponsoring season two of the Housing News Podcast, please shoot me a note on LinkedIn or email our sales team at sales at housingwire.com. We're really looking for two great partners that value the perspective and insight that the podcast brings to the housing industry. And you really want to get in front of our rapidly growing listener base of industry professionals. We'd love to have you on board for season two. So look forward to chatting. And now the season finale. This has been an awesome day. We are here at the Housing Wire headquarters in Dallas, Texas, and uh, not just any day at Housing Wire. We're really lucky to have Doug Duncan, the chief economist of Fannie Mae, here at Housing Wire pretty much all day, uh, presenting to our team, working with our reporters and editors, and uh, just helping us gain a a deeper knowledge of the economic uh, research and work that he and his team, pretty large team as I understand it, are are doing at Fannie Mae. And uh, for this season finale episode of the Housing News podcast, we wanted to bring to you a really special guest, and Doug is that guy. So, Doug, welcome <laughs> to the Housing News Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> we're to we're thrilled here. to have you. And uh, in addition to Doug, we also have a, another special guest from the Housing Wire team. KK Halley is our real estate editor, and she flew down from Boston today. Is here at Housing Wire with us. KK, welcome to the Housing News Podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have you for this conversation and, and in the office today. And we're going to kind of break the mold a little bit on this show and, and focus in on a few core themes instead of focusing in on specific articles like we've done for, for most of the episodes in the, the for the Housing News podcast. But before we jump into those themes we want to tackle, um, we like I, like I always say, we love stories at Housing Wire and um, the, the people are what really make up this industry. So Doug, can you tell us a little bit about your, yourself, your background, how, how you became an economist and how you ended up at Fannie Mae? I think it'd be... I, 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 it doesn't have to be the, the full story, but uh, I think our audience would really benefit by kind of understanding your background, how you how you come to be the chief economist of Fannie Mae. Uh, well, yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but um, <laughs> I grew up on a dairy farm, and I knew I didn't want to spend my life under the business end of a Holstein. So um, I uh, uh, um, went into the Navy, and while I was in the Navy, for whatever reason, I started reading Music Magazine, and every other week... Uh, Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman wrote columns. And both of them eventually became Nobel Prize winning economists, but they had almost completely opposite views of what worked from an economics perspective. And I thought, how did two people each win a Nobel Prize by taking opposite positions of one another? And I thought, that that's a pretty interesting place, and I'm a Scotsman. Sounds like a great argument. You never keep a Scotsman out of an argument. <laughs> so I decided to get a degree actually in agricultural economics uh, because I grew up on a farm and knew the problem set. But I liked the finance side of things in particular. So when I finished my Ph.D. at uh, Texas A&M, I got my, bat- my bachelor's and master's at North Dakota State, I uh, 
went to work for the USDA to find a way to network through the Washington network of institutions to find a way more clearly into the financial markets. And the Mortgage Bankers Association at one point was uh, looking for a policy-oriented economist. And so uh, somebody who knew me reached out and said, hey, I thought you wanted to get out of ag into finance, so here's an opportunity. So I went to, went to work at uh, MBA as a standalone economist. I knew nothing about housing or mortgage finance at all. Uh, in fact, at that point, I didn't, hadn't even owned a house. Uh, and... Um, over the years, by by taking an analytic approach to that, I worked my way up to um, to the managing the research department for the chief economist, who had two or three other uh, departments. And then he left, so I was just sitting there wondering who they were going to get to replace the chief economist because I'd never forecasted anything. And then they called me in the office and asked me to take the job, and I was I was kind of floored because I was never part of a career plan of mine. So I thought about it for a week, and I accepted, and the rest is, is kind of history. I, I moved from MBA to Fannie Mae uh, in 2008, uh, just as the market was melting down. Uh, part of that was uh, I'd, uh, the trade association was small, 180 employees or thereabouts. Fannie Mae was more like eight to 10,000, and I thought it would be interesting to work for a larger organization that was having some significant difficulties. Uh, that I might learn a lot about who knew how to problem solve and and learn the secondary market part of the business where I'd focused on the primary market part of the business at MBA. So been there since uh, 2008 as chief economist. It's been very fascinating. And earlier you told us a little bit about the the responsibilities that your team has at, at Fannie and you know, there's there's parts of the job where you, you kind of wear like a, a, a consultant's hat and, and help the business mm-hmm. face challenges and, and how they're how they're going to face those challenges. Um, was that a is that a standard part of a chief economist role, or is that something <laughs> unique to you coming in to Fannie in 2008 when they needed that that kind of guidance uh, at an analytical level? Well, I um, I guess most corporate chief economists have fairly small staffs. When I joined Fannie, I inherited four staff. Um, and uh, after getting a little feel for the lay of the land, it struck me that if um, I was going to have an impact or our group was going to have an impact of strategic importance, the first thing that we probably had to do is gain the confidence of the various business units that we could actually add to their uh, bottom line. And so uh, in addition to the forecast responsibilities, then I went about uh, building a team of, of analysts that could function at the corporate level, but as consultants to the business units to help them solve problems. So that turned out to be a reasonably good strategy. And as we were helping others, the, the offer to take on more resources and expand that influence grew. And eventually uh, we got up to about 67 or 70 staff. And then we divided that group because one of the things we did was build out a strategy, corporate strategy function. And then we built out an enterprise innovation team and when it became clear that there was going to be a push to attempt to turn us uh, private, we needed to build out a capital function. And if you think about it, you would want your capital uh, function to be aligned with your corporate strategy and innovation being key to staying ahead of the markets. Those three things align pretty well. So we uh, promoted one of my vice presidents to a senior vice president and sent that group out separately. Um, got us back to about 35 employees, and then uh, we decided to move the commercial real estate uh, economists into the group, so now we're at about 40 again. So uh, I'm not trying to build an empire. It's just they keep giving me things to do. So, uh, And it's been fascinating. It's been a, a lot of fun, um, and I think we've, we can say that we've added uh, value to the, to the company, and that's basically all we're after is just trying to add value. It's like they say that work begets work. You, uh, you do a good job, and you, more lands on your more lands on your lap. It sort of works out that way, uh, so, which is great. It's a challenge, and and I enjoy that. All right, that's awesome. Well, thanks for that background, and I think we take this chance to kind of transition into 
the meat of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And through our earlier conversations today, and uh, from from my perspective, and, and talking through it, the, the, our housing wire journalists, like Alcina, our producer for the show, um, we felt like there was three core themes that we found really interesting, and that we'd really love your perspective and viewpoints on. We know there are areas you've done done a fair amount of work and research, and um, I'll, I'll go ahead and share those three topics now, and then we can dig into each one separately, and, and KK can help us uh, peel back the onion and get a little deeper um, after the core topics. So we want to cover housing supply, demographics, and recession. Big topics, topics that influence every single mortgage lender and real estate professional that reads Housing Wire and listens to this show. Um, if you are in housing and you do not care about supply, demographics, or recession risk, then, um, man, I, I'm actually envious of you that you don't worry about those things. I worry about them all the time. <laughs> Me too. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, lucky you. Don't worry about those things. <laughs> no, we're, we're going to dig in deep and so you have a better understanding of uh, if these are things you actually should worry about and, um, and what the, the risk and concerns actually are. So let's start at the top, housing mm-hmm. supply. Mm-hmm. Well, housing um, is... Uh, primarily driven by demographics. So the supply that's needed depends on the number of people and how they form households and how those households decide to live. Uh, Today, a summary of housing supply is we're annually producing probably 300,000 less units of uh, owned single family and apartments than we should given our current demographic profile. The reasons for that um, at a very high level are that the boomers are doing what they said they were going to do and are aging in place. So the uh, Gen Xers Uh, who took the biggest damage in the downturn are also staying in place where they own the land and tearing the roof off of the house and putting on another floor so they're not adding to the existing supply. And builders, while they are managing to increase output, have never primarily built to the entry-level market but more to the move-up market. So if those other two segments are not moving up, then there's only so much that they can do to uh, to fix the the lack of supply. So that's kind of the cliff notes summary of what's going on. What that results in is, is, over the last six or seven years has been significant price appreciation, adjusted for inflation, probably four times the long-term national average pace of appreciation. So that's created some affordability issues for the entry-level folks as well, because if you look within each market and divide it by high, medium, and low-priced homes, and then look at the pace of price appreciation at each of those levels in every market. It's the low pace, the, the low price segment that's appreciating fastest. Doug, I have, I have a question for you mm-hmm. and a potential solution to the housing shortage problem. <laughs> Why We're going to solve it all right now. Yeah, let's, let's solve it right now. Why can't the builders do what they did after World War II and buckle down and build some Levittowns and get, get, somehow get a business model that works to put up these entry-level level homes uh, in areas where perhaps you know, there isn't as much of a shortage of land, where the land would not be that expensive. It seems like this is something that the builders could solve, but it seems to me they're sitting on the sidelines. And we know, we know that home building or uh, residential fixed investment led the way out of every recession of the modern age until this last one, the Great Recession. And we haven't seen home building come back. So what's, what's happening? Well, you touched on it uh, in, in your, uh, the opening part of your comment, which was the places where there's land available. Of course, one of the things that we know, because we tried the opposite during the crisis, is that the first thing you need if you're gonna buy a house is a job. Uh, we tried lending to people that didn't have jobs, didn't work out that well, right? So the millennials learned that lesson. So there were all these stories that emerged about millennials don't want to own homes. They want 300 square foot apartments. In fact, if you look at where jobs first grew in after this crisis, it was the most heavily concentrated in the urban core of any post-World War II expansion. So if you're going to have a job, It was going to be in San Francisco or in New York City or in Houston or in a major metro area where you cannot build single-family detached houses affordably. What you have is 300-square-foot apartments with amenities. 
So part of it is how the expansion took place and the lack of available affordable land. Now, that's changed somewhat because employment has spread out across the country now. So what you're seeing is there is more uh, engagement in homeownership by the millennials. In fact, they're driving the demand curve. Starting in about 2015, they became the driver of, uh, of the demand curve. But I just talked to a developer in Northern Virginia outside of Washington, D.C., and we were talking about the regulatory response to the crisis. So he said the total fees associated with entitlement and permits up to the construction, the beginning of the construction of the house on a standard lot in that area is $195,000. If you haven't even started building the house yet, that's not going to be an affordable entry-level home by the time that construction is done. So there was a significant response across the country to the blight and the foreclosures that occurred, some of which made it more costly to develop in the future because municipalities didn't want to deal with the downside of foreclosures. But unfortunately, the second round effect of that is once the economy is better, now the costs related to those things are raising the entry level of, of homes above the affordability of many uh, starter households. Let me ask a follow-up. What part of that Rubik's Cube is labor and the fact that home builders have traditionally relied very heavily on immigrant laborers and perhaps don't have access to as large a pool now? And in fact, we hear all the time about the shortage of of, of, of workers in the construction industry. Yeah, that's true. Um, the, the, all the surveys of builders uh, suggest that their biggest problem is access to labor. Land, labor, and lumber is the way they characterize it. There's probably three components or maybe more to the, to the labor piece. One of the, them is what you suggested, which is the, uh, the immigrant population that's in the labor force for construction. The, during the crisis, we went from building 2.2 million units a year to 600,000, and we stayed at that low level for about three years. So all the labor that would have been uh, used in building the 2.2 million net of the 600,000 had to find someplace else to go. Some of it retired. Some of it went home to its, uh, to its home country. Uh, some of it went into other jobs. Uh, so... For that long time period, those people have now gone into something that's more sustainable for them longer term. Plus, they see the risk of employment in construction, which is which has its ups and downs cyclically. Typically, not nearly as much as was uh, in that in the crisis, but certainly all three of those factors are a piece of of the labor piece. There is or the the shortage of labor. There's one other thing, which is the uh, builders, as you know work with subcontractors to put together a house. They don't own all of the components themselves. And in talking to some builders, the subcontractors that survived the crisis were by nature the most conservative contractors in the business. That's how they survived. So just because things are growing again today, they're 10 years older than they were at the beginning of the crisis and closer to retirement themselves. So their willingness to take the risk of substantial expansion is not great. And so what some of the builders have done is lock up in long-term promised financial relationships those subcontractors to keep control of that labor force uh, to the exclusion of other, other builders. So it's an interesting, complex problem uh, that all has its roots in the in the crisis. So the other L there, uh, we talked about um, uh, labor and lumber. Uh, so land, are, are develop like what I saw anecdotally coming out of two thousand eight, were developments just completely paused when when uh, when um, when demand dried up, financing dried up, projects stopped. Yep. We've seen some of those projects turn back on, but are developers sitting on land portfolios that they're ready to go on, or, or what, what's the situation with that with that third L? Not really. Uh, up until, say, uh, three years or, or so ago, uh, that land, which was 
partially developed and, and abandoned, uh, was brought back into production, and those were some lower cost options. But today, most of that's been absorbed. And the question is, where relative to the jobs, you can get land for development. Mm. Um, it, back at the start of the crisis, we actually, going back to my farm background, and I told a little story earlier about uh, the way I think about how production is put together has to do with the way things worked on the farm, which was people <laughs> would ask my dad, Charlie, are you going to have a good crop of corn in October? And he would say, well, if you're going to have a good crop of corn in October, the tractor has to start in March, right? So if you're going to build a house, the first thing you have to get is a piece of land, right? And so we started by asking land investment companies, what are you doing back in the 2011 timeframe? And one of the investment companies we talked to had had a team of 11 in the state of Florida for a year and had not bought a single piece of land. So it suggested to us that the recovery of the supply curve was going to take a long time. And you can think about the other components, PVC pipe and electrical junction boxes. When you destroy three quarters of the supply chain, it's going to take a long time to rebuild. And those restrictions that, that I was answering uh, KK about in terms of development uh, apply to getting land permitted. Uh, a couple of years ago, I talked to somebody who had about, uh, I, I believe it was lots available for development, about 2,000 uh, potential lots south of San Francisco that had been through 13 public hearings over three years and was still not fully permitted for construction. All that's cost that goes into the base price of the houses that are going to be sold on that land when it's eventually developed. Looking at a, another factor that I think is new coming out of the recession that impacts supply is the single-family rental market. I mean, we're, we're seeing mom-and-pop and institutional buyers um, buying up properties for, uh, for single-family rental um, portfolios. Uh, we're also seeing developers build communities, build, build to rent, and uh, they're, they're building homes with the, the intent of renting them instead of selling them. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have a measure of the impact of SFR on on supply and any views on how the SFR market may continue to apply pressure to, to housing supply going forward or, or may provide some relief in any way? Well, in the initial stages during the crisis, those the institutional investors that got into the, that space actually served a very important arbitrage function of taking vacant properties and converting them to affordable rentals because the, the prices had fallen so far that the price at which they could acquire them gave them room to put in ten or fifteen thousand dollars of improvements, and then rent at a rent that still got them their target after-tax rate of return. So that that was very important for them to help at the bottom of the crisis with that arbitrage function. They, in the course of that, they uh, developed some very. Uh, efficient technology solutions to some problems which actually have uh, allowed them to continue to re uh, generate very good rates of return. Things like remote access to look at a property. You could call them. They didn't have to send a person there to the building. They could send you a code which you could enter on the lock at 2 o'clock in the morning if you mm -hmm. wanted and go look at the property when you wanted and they didn't have to send someone there. Very efficient from a time perspective and a cost perspective. Um, and a bunch of other strategies on taking care of the properties and all that. So those were, however, properties that might have gone into the existing home market as a first-time sale property. No question about that. So now you've got uh, some institutional investment in that space. You've got boomers not moving. You've got Gen Xers not moving. So it's a third piece of the existing home supply that would have been an entry-level property. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because if you look at the pre-boom distribution of single-family-owned homes, uh, one, to, uh, one to four and five to 50 and 50-unit 50 and above rentals, the distribution today is pretty close to what it was pre-crisis. 
what's going on is that the millennials are an even, even bigger generation than the boomers. So the size of demand from their household formation is even bigger than, than that. So that's a part mixed with the lack of movement of those other uh, age groups. That's where the supply uh, shortage comes in focus. All right. Well, I think that's a, I mean, we, we've tackled some uh, topical components of demographic as demographics as we're talking about housing supply, but mm -hmm. let's like fully jump into to demographics. And um, I think to, there's some, some questions that we really want to get into here, but I think it'd be helpful to kind of do a quick recap of, of your views, uh, kind of starting with the baby boomers down to millennials or even Gen Z on how, uh, on where they kind of stand in the current, um, their current housing position, whether mm -hmm. they're uh Buying, renting, uh, aging in place. Uh, leave it to you to, to give us the the summary of where each um, large generational group sits. Sure. Um, about 15 years ago or so, there's a bunch of stories written about the boomers like to party because they were born and raised in the 60s and the 70s. So when the <laughs> kids move out, they're going to sell a suburban home, buy a condo downtown, and party the night away. So I tell people that I live in Cape Coral, Florida which our kids call God's waiting room. Uh, you can tell they're being raised by an economist, no feelings there. Um, and, and, but the evidence from Cape Coral, uh, which does have a, a, a somewhat of a retirement population, but we also have a very significant young population. But the evidence there is if you want a good restaurant reservation, wait till about 7.30, right? So there was a misinterpretation of the, the distributional pattern of behaviors versus the numbers of people in that distribution. So the, the boomers have said all along, we intend to age in place. But there are so many of them that in the tail distribution of people who would be willing to sell the suburban home and move downtown to a condo, that there's actually quite a number of people who do that. But as a share of their population group, the share is no bigger than of their parents. It's just that they're more of them. So if that's your business model, is building condos for aging boomers, could be a good business to be in in different markets. It's just that behaviorally, they're no different than their parents. The same thing was told about the millennials. The millennials went through square foot apartments. I went through that story, that that's where the jobs were. That wasn't yep. what they wanted. And they delayed marriage two years longer than the same age cohort a decade earlier. So, and some of them had to work off some student debt. So they were doing that. They, got, they knew they had to have a job. And they told us all this through our surveys. They said, well, first thing, we've got to have a job. Then we want to make sure that job is a growing income. Then we want to get our credit straight. All that has to happen. We'll probably get married before we consider whether it's important to get a mortgage. And so from the mortgage perspective, that was down the road a ways. So they've done that. And as I mentioned, in 2015, they became the driving force on, on the demand side. It, it worked out because employment spread out across the country from that urban intensity that, that was there at the beginning. And as it spread out geographically, the land costs were lower so you could build more affordable homes because land is the key component to how affordable a house is ultimately going to be. So uh, they're doing uh, what they said they were going to do. They said from the outset, we intend to own a home. Now there is a nuance there. We also, we will, there's the basic question of, do you eventually want to own a house? To that 90% plus in the first month that we surveyed, which was June of 2010, said, yes, we eventually want to own a house. But all those other things have to line up first before we, uh, before we get to that. But if you ask them, here's a list of 10 things, one of which is owning a home. Where does that rank relative to a number of other things? And that's actually along the millennials where it was maybe third among the Gen Xers, it's maybe sixth in the millennials. So it's not in and of itself, they would like to get there, but it's not a exclusive of their other interests. They're not gonna postpone the, the experiences of exactly. life. Exactly, and uh, that ranks higher, that's exactly right. So that is an important nuance because it might affect the timing at which they make the decision to own a home 
and it might be different. The number of move-ups might be different than for previous cohorts. We'll, we'll see how that works out. But they, because they delayed marriage more than two years, that also means that's less time to have babies. So I would expect one of the demographic factors will be the next generation will be smaller because that generation will have had less babies. So if you're in the business of making things for babies, you'd also want to think about that market too, like baby clothes and cribs and all that kind of stuff. The, the supply of that might change based on that demographic factor, and those things typically reside in a house, right? Uh, so the size of the house that you have may also be impacted by the size of households, which might be smaller in that next group. One of the other questions that raises then is, are there sufficient births to replenish our population? Well, the US birth rate right now is about 1.87, and what that means is 1.87 live births per birthing age woman, and replacement is 2.1. So the domestic population absent immigration will not replenish itself uh, going forward. Now our situation is actually better than the vast majority of developed countries. Most of them are less than that. Uh, but absent immigration, that's the future. You take places like Italy, they're at about 1.6. Japan is less than 1.6. Those are demographic implosions. Russia is actually declining in population already. Japan is declining in population. Um, there are really only two significant developed countries that without immigration have over-replenishment birth rates, and they are India, which will shortly pass China in total population, and Mexico, which is our most important trading partner. So um, some interesting nuances in demographics about the future of the housing market and also the economy. So the housing market has a stake in the immigration discussion uh, and um, I think we may hear that voice uh, become more important going forward. Because population growth supports home prices, right? It That's does. That's a very basic it, point. And demand for homes. Exactly. Uh, and, and yes, home prices as a result of that. Uh, it also supports economic growth. So most macroeconomists will tell you that the view of the long-run sustainable level of economic growth is the rate of annual change in your population and the rate of productivity growth. So right now, I think the most recent quarter's productivity growth was about 1.7%. Our current population growth is about 0.8%. I think the workforce growth is 0.6, so some use one, some use the other. Um, so somewhere between 2.3 and 2.5% annual GDP growth would be a sustainable, non-inflationary growth of economic activity, which is about what we're getting this year. So that's why immigration is pretty important, because on that side of the growth of the population of the workforce, the lower that number, the less potential for economic growth and therefore income growth. And if you look at states like Maine, for example, that's losing population, and see what the effect it has on home prices, then it, it sort of the relationship becomes clear. Let me ask you a, a demographic question, specifically household formation that you mentioned. Have the millennials fully moved out of their parents' basement <laughs> since you know we, we saw a lot of them uh, boomeranging, going back home uh, during the Great Recession? Where are we at with with you know household formation? Is should it be at an even higher level than it is now? Or, or, you know, are young, young people, young adults still living in their parents' basement at an inordinately high rate? The answer is no and yes. No, <laughs> they're not. Uh, they have not formed the households at the rate that you would have expected given past performance, other age cohorts. And yes, they are still living in their parents' basements at very high levels. It's close to the highest that it's been. So the pent-up demand for household formation is significant, which is a supply, I mean, a demand-side expectation for the, the housing market. Um, and I asked that question, how many of you have kids living in the basement and the hands slowly go up? And how many of you have had kids that have left the basement and those hands go up much more quickly? And then how many of you subsidized the departure and then those hands go up slowly again? 
So yeah, it remains uh, a uh, a demographic unfolding uh, that we'll see. So the housing market's going to be a good place to be from a business perspective, at least for the next decade or so. Uh, should be a strong a strong time period. And it's a, it's a wide age band too, and mm-hmm. at, a, at, a, at a lot of different critical life points that the millennials are at right now. I mean, I'm at the the older end of the millennial age band, and I'm. Got two kids, a dog, and a cat at home, and like mm-hmm. I feel very different than the people that are living in their parents' basement. But I also recognize there's people in my generation that are a year, less than a year out of college, and um, are are just getting just getting started. So that that's one part of the the economic study and, and coverage of the millennial generation that's always frustrated me is the the various life points that you have over a 20 year age gap in generation and. Um, I mean, that's that's a there's a lot of meaningful um, life stages in there that that Absolutely. I think can really weight on the data. And, there, and there's a uh, John Burns, who I think some of you know, has written a book yes. on de- demographics where he does something that I think is very useful. He divides population groups by decade of birth, and points out the the significant factors that happened in each decade that has impacted the behavior of that decade. Part of the point of that is that if you look at the millennial group, the iPhone was introduced in the middle of that age group. So the older half of that did not grow up with the iPhone. The younger half did. So that has led to some behavioral changes. And when you ask them, what what do you think about what you would like to do in terms of financial services electronically, you get some interesting answers. One of the things that we're talking about real estate is it's one of those spaces where at the end of the day they want to talk to another person. So the idea that mortgages will be purely electronic, not for buying a house. We don't we don't see that. Maybe refinancing a house might be more likely because you're not moving your family. But if you're moving your household, wanting to talk to somebody before you make the final decision on that seems, even in the millennial group, to be something that they're focused on. Interestingly, when you think about the impact of the iPhone on other age groups, the boomers who have already had a couple of mortgages so they know the mortgage process are actually more likely to make use of more electronics in the process because they understand all the paperwork. And if you're just shifting it to electronics, happy to do that. Uh, Not that I'm going to out myself as a boomer, but I actually (laughs) am. But my most recent refinance, the only interaction I had with a person was the notary came to my house with the papers and we signed the final thing on my kitchen counter. So it was almost a purely electronic uh, transaction, though lots of emails in there back and forth with different people. Right? So I'm really glad we brought this to the, to the transaction. And I, I want to dig into, if I'm a mortgage banking executive or a loan originator or a real estate agent, how should I be thinking about demographic changes that are impacting my business today in, in 2019 or, or in, the, in the next decade? And I recognize that we have a lot that's going to play out when we talk about these um, household formation trends and um, potentially slowing population growth. Um, but those challenges will start to present themselves piece by piece every year. But there's there's industry professionals that are trying to figure out how they advise their clients and advise their colleagues and employees on uh, demographic changes that are affecting their markets today. So from your vantage point, how should loan originators and agents be thinking about demographic trends as they set their their strategy for the remainder of of 2019 and and 2020 and and how to to build their business and effectively serve home buyers? Well, there are some things that Uh, that are always true. And if you are in the business to uh, provide mortgages for people to buy houses, that's the part of the business that will always exist. Refinancing is an opportunistic play driven by the changes in interest rates. It may or may not be there, but if you're going to be in the business long term, you should have a role in making mortgages to people who are buying houses. And that will always be the case. I mentioned earlier, one of the reasons I stayed in real estate when I went from the Mortgage Bankers Association to Fannie Mae is 
just the simple observation that people have always lived in a structure built on land somewhere in proximity to where they worked in a structure built on land. It's like accounting. Every company has to total up the inflows and the outflows. It's, it's like that. Very simple uh, calculation. Now, what level of activity happens in a different time period depends on a variety of factors, like what we've been talking about in household formation, the pace of household formation, what's going on with interest rates, what's going on with house prices. Those things modulate the level of activity, but it's always going on. For those who may not have been born, say, uh, in the 1980 time period, mortgage interest rates were 15 to 18 percent. Mm-hmm. And homes still sold at 15 to 18%. Apparently, people needed a place to sleep. <laughs> Apparently, right. So that's one thing. Uh, a second thing is when we survey consumers, uh, they, the, the consumers say what they're looking for technology to do to them, to, or for them, I should say, is make shopping easier. Make the process more easily understood. That doesn't mean they don't want to talk to people because they do in terms of understanding the process, especially if they're a first-time homebuyer. They want somebody to explain what are the things I have control over, what don't I control. But I should be able to access information more rapidly using technology. So uh, they, they give us some clues about where people who want to be at the forefront of the business can produce efficiencies through the application of technology that meet the interests of those consumers. And over time, whether it's the real estate agent, whether it's the loan officer, whether it's the loan servicer, there's no question you've got to be investing in technologic improvements to remove frictions from the process. That's what consumers are looking for. Time is money. It's always been that way. It'll always be that way. Now, today we we talked a fair amount about history um, and also talked about looking forward. And a, bi- a big part of the hit, the, the reality is we're still like in this post-recessionary period coming out of, of 2008. There's so many parts of this industry that are still influenced by what, what happened a, a decade ago. Um, so many uh, reg- regulations, um, who, who the players are in the industry right now, um, and, uh, and also the level of fear that um, professionals have and homeowners have. Can you talk a little bit about the way the crisis may have changed the way people feel about housing and, uh, and, and how you've seen some lenders addressing that fear, or if, the, if the data is, um, is supporting that there might be parts of the demographic, demographic groups that just don't value housing the same way they used to? Well, I think part of the boomers aging in place is a recognition that prices go up and down, and if your house is paid off, then no one controls your fate other than you, right? If you if you owe money to someone and you're in the retirement area where you have a fixed income and you're paid off, there's some safety in remaining where you are. So I think that's a piece of why the boomers are aging in place. It's not the whole story, but it's a piece of it. And it, if the crisis had not happened, I would argue, though I don't have solid statistical evidence of it, that there would have been more mobility in the boomers because in their parents' generation there was more mobility. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, I, there's some you can draw some correlation between the two. Whether it's directly causal, I'm not going to make that claim, but it strikes me that that's the case. In the, I, I think the, the Gen Xers tearing off the roof, staying in the house, adding another floor, similarly says, look, uh, you know, I own the most expensive piece of this property. You never know where rates and employment and things like that are going to go. It's a lot less expensive in terms of having to move my family and, and disrupt their social setting and change houses and all that. It's kind of easier to stay in place. In the millennial group, what we can look at of people who are first-time homebuyers, what share of their income they're dedicating to buying a house, and it, the share of them who are paying more than 30% of their income to buy a house is historically low. So they're clearly, part of it's being forced by credit criteria, that credit conditions are uh-huh. tighter than they were pre, pre-crisis, but part of it is conservatism on their part about not wanting to get overextended 
uh, in uh, taking on more credit. Part of it too probably is the fact that they do have some student loan debt in many cases that they have to amortize. But clearly there's more of a conservatism on their part before they take on the obligation of a mortgage. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I, um, I feel like that's a, if it hasn't already been done, that's an interesting personal finance and, and wallet share study on if, uh, if confidence could increase the, the share of, um, of wallet that is going toward housing. Um, or if the layer on the just the modern economy of having a hundred dollar plus um, iPhone bill every month and Netflix subscriptions and uh, and student mm-hmm. loans, if the the other new economy participants have eaten up part of that wallet share that you, that might have been an extra three, four, or five points of wallet that could have gone to a mortgage or a rent payment. Well, that could reflect to the extent that it involves Netflix and uh, you know. Uh, the online I guess ten dollars a month for Netflix it, might be a, a stretch. Well, but whatever. I know those those layer they they, they add up. Like, but you could buy a small <clears throat> house and put lots of amenities yep. in it, which would show up with other bills, mm-hmm. and that might be a way that you could get some experience into the house, right? To the extent that they're interested in experiences, that's a different way. You don't have to leave, especially if you have kids, which is more expensive to travel than if you don't have kids. The fact that you put some of those amenities in the house. We might not have thought about that in the past. They might not have been available because technology has made them newly available. I mean, you can buy a what a 65-inch uh, screen now for the for half the price of what a color TV was when I got married, or maybe even a third yeah. of the price. So completely different options uh, driven by some things that have been uh, made available through technology. All right. Well, let's jump into the, the, the third big topic we want to cover. I know these are so so intertwined. So we'll, pro- we'll probably come back to a few of them, but <clears throat> let, let's talk about recession. And uh, and one of the themes or one of the structures of our podcast has been focusing on top news stories. And it's hard to turn on the TV or open your email and not see a headline about uh, recession risk right now. And uh, so I, I'm not going to lead you with a question here. I just want to drop a topic recession and and see where your head is. Well. Let me tie the conversation we just had about fear to uh, reset to a recession and the the greater conservatism and both in the underwriting and in people's willingness to commitment shares of their income actually in our view will create a greater resilience in the housing market in the next downturn than we than we would have seen in a pre-crisis downturn so that's actually a plus that people became in some sense more conservative about taking that debt on in the event that we have a downturn. So, you know, people joke that the uh, if you ask economists, the next recession is always two years away. And so I guess it's two years away. Uh, <laughs> we're really bad at uh, forecasting those turning points. So I'll tell you what our forecast is. Uh, this year we expect the economy, this year being 2019, we expect the economy to grow at about two and a quarter percent, something like that. Uh, next year, less than two, somewhere in the one and a half to one and three quarters percent growth across the course of the year. Anytime you get under two percent or a one and a half for sure, people start getting nervous that it doesn't take a huge shock to turn the economy over into a recession. This is now the longest economic expansion that the U.S. has ever had in its history since we've recorded data to, to identify that. And just because it's long doesn't mean it ends, but they all have at some point. Um, And uh, so we clearly, um, in our theme for this year, which was the economy slowing, the Fed slows, and housing plateaus, it was a recognition. What we expected was economic activity was going to slow after the impulse of the tax cut was put in place and the additional spending, we would see slower growth this year. That's turned out to be pretty true. We're tracking right at the two and a quarter percent growth uh, path. The Fed uh, stopped increasing rates. In fact, they've reversed, so that part, they didn't just slow, they, they're actually reducing. And we, we expect the Fed will cut rates again in September and again in December. So they're not done with that from our perspective. 
uh, and housing plateaus, that we were referring to home sales, and our view was that home sales in 2019 would be roughly the same as in 2018, and then we have them slowing in 2020, again, as economic activity slows. That slowing in activity, from our perspective, will raise the unemployment rate somewhat, maybe back to four, three, four, four, something like that in 2020. But if there is a shock, whether it's a trade-related shock, whether it's a financial sector shock, something like that certainly could tip us over in the 2020 time period uh, or 2021 time period. We're anticipating that part of the Fed's movement is some insurance, even though the uh, Governor Powell characterized it in his press conference after the last meeting as a mid-course correction. I think his comments at Jackson Hole suggested it's a little more than a mid-course correction. In fact, the, he sort of opened the door for additional rate cuts, uh, which the market is building in in their expectations. So they have at least the two cuts that we've uh, suggested uh, in uh, built into market expectations. So um, it, it, our, our thought is that if there is a recession, if it's relatively mild, which we tend to think the next one would be, because they're not the obvious financial imbalances that there were in the last uh, in the last downturn, more so we might see stock market declines and consumption impacts as opposed to financial sector disruptions. Although there is a segment of the corporate non-financial debt market that makes us nervous. Uh, the triple B and high yield share is the at all-time highs. Uh, so if there was a shock that degraded some of the ratings in that space, there might not be the liquidity available for people to reposition if they have regulatory rules that suggest they can't hold securities under a certain rating. So that's a one thing that is a possible risk. Um, but uh, so if it is a relatively mild recession, let's say unemployment runs to seven or seven and a half percent, 92 and a half percent of workers are still working. What happens to the demand side of the housing market is those unemployed workers leave the demand side, so demand growth slows. Supply is still below what demographics would suggest is, is needed, so builders could continue to build in that space. The Fed will lower interest rates and ease monetary policy. That's not a bad environment to buy a house if you're one of those 92.5% that doesn't already own a house and would like to buy a house. So housing could be a cushion to the downside of a modest recession. Uh, there's a precedent for that in the recession in 2000 when, with the dot-com uh, meltdown. There was a mild recession. Housing actually strengthened during that recession as people shifted their investments from the tech space into real estate Hard and housing did very well in that. So there's a precedent and, for that. And then housing supports <coughs> the consumer spending. That's 70% of the economy because you move, you buy a new house, you want to buy drapes, you want to buy a new couch, you want to buy That's different exactly. things for your house. Let me ask you about the consumer confidence numbers that came out uh, recently uh, from the conference board. They were, uh, one of the readings reached an almost 19 year high when they asked consumers how they felt about current conditions. How are things today? And then when they ask them about their expectations, and specifically the way they phrase it is six months out, what do you think? And it fell by quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So it, there seems to be a bifurcation going on in people's view of the economy. What, what, what did those numbers tell you? Well, we, you can, if you divide by income category, you'll find a difference in the different income categories. And we survey as well, and so we do that. We look at ours. The higher income category are more likely to have investment portfolios. And with all the volatility that's been almost daily in the stock market, that, from our perspective, has clearly concerned that upper income cohort about whether or not the trade discussions are actually going to lead to a decline in their stock portfolios. The low segment, which is where the stronger income growth has been recently, are feeling very good about that income growth, and they're driving consumption. So the consumer's doing very well, uh, and the confidence level among that group is quite strong. So it really, it kind of depends on what your income and assets look like from our perspective in terms of how you feel. 
We ask in our survey, we ask an opening question that's, and our survey, by the way, is designed to eliminate politics. But we don't want to get caught up in any political discussions. We would, so we, we ask an open question, very simple. Is the economy on the right track or the wrong track? And anybody can draw a judgment any way that they want. What has been interesting, and here again, income plays a part, and I'll get to that in a minute. From June of 2010 until the uh, President Trump was elected, never in that time frame did 50% of the respondents say the economy was on the wrong track, the, the right track. The highest it got was 47%. There were the two elections um, of uh, President Obama at, in the month of the election, there were equal numbers of people saying right and wrong track, but neither of them was 50% because there was a share that said, I don't know, <laughs> right? But since the Trump election, it has stayed, the share saying the economy is on the right track has stayed above 50% the entire time. Now, if you subdivide that by income level, you'll see that part of why that low segment low-income segment is very confident today is they've seen growth in income at that level that was much greater than they saw before. And so if you tie back to where there was job loss in the manufacturing, paint, paint a chart, and we have a chart that shows where were manufacturing job losses going, you can see why the election turned out the way it did. It's buried there, not actually buried, it's there obvious in the data when you look back at it. So the, there's, that will continue to play a piece in what happens going into the next election, but we don't typically highlight that because, like I said, we're not, you know, we're not on one side or the other of the political party spectrum. We're just pointing out what the data is saying. You can look at the same data. We're happy to share the data that we see with you. In fact, we make all of our survey data available to anyone who wants to look at it and do their own analysis. When I, um, since I have a, an economist here, I'll, I'll ask him a question about the surveying and methodology. When I see consumer confidence surveys and I see surveys about um, recession risk or consumer concern, I, I start to think about the, the circular nature of how people respond to surveys. And every, every headline about recession is another little flag in the back of the head of that of that person who's answering the question is are are you concerned about the the future of the economy and every time there's a a politician or a headline who shouts from the from the rafters that the economy's never been better. Um, that's all. That's another. That's a different little flag that tells right. that tells mm-hmm. somebody else. Oh, sure. Think think like someone's telling me this is good. This is good. Right. And uh, so when I see super high consumer confidence, I assume okay they were told the economy's good, so they are they are answering <laughs> the economy's good. Their wages didn't go up. They didn't get a promotion. Their their house price didn't rise by ten percent. They just told the economy got better. So I'm gonna mm-hmm. say my confidence is high um, but then they turn on uh, certain news outlets in here recession 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 so I'm more concerned about next year so th- so that those surveys don't surprise me at all because that is that is exactly what um, I'd say head- headline risk that, I mean that's exactly what uh, we're, we're kind of we're hearing so I, I don't know what's your view as an economist there do you think there's um, influence there on, on how people respond to those surveys or our survey um, are, are the folks that are administering the surveys properly taking into account the, the kind of circular nature of risk of con- consumer perception? Well, the, I think that, the, the, for example, the Conference Board and the Michigan survey, they apply the best standards of sta- science that they can to survey methodologies. <clears throat> we do the same. We, we try to match all the federal statistical properties and we make that transparent to you so you can go in and look at what we do uh-huh. and determine whether or not we're applying the best uh, standards of science. How people respond, we can't control. We're asking them their attitude and they are probably influenced by a host of things, some of which is politics, yep. I have no doubt. Um, so that's why we spend time trying to match attitude to action. So let me give you a very specific post-crisis test of consumer attitude and action. So if you remember the Cash for Clunkers program, if you go back and, uh, so I'll do a little segue, my favorite anecdote from that time period is 
honest to goodness, there was an old Soviet sub that was sighted off the East Coast during that time period, and the question was, were they bringing it in for a cash for clunkers? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a true story. But so if you look at consumer optimism, it was very low coming out of the crisis. So people's attitudes were very... Uh, but when the cash for clunkers program was offered, huge spike in auto sales. So consumers may have a bad attitude, but they're opportunistic. If you're going to give them $4,300 to buy a car they were going to have to buy anyway, they're going to take advantage of that opportunity. So to your point about attitudes being affected by various things, certainly, just like opportunities will affect behaviors uh, as well. I mean, with that anecdote, it doesn't really <laughs> matter why the attitude is the attitude. If the attitude exists, then or the the uh, the, co- the confidence level, exists. no matter no matter why the confidence level is high, that it has an economic impact. So yeah, that's, that's right. That's fair. Yeah, and we know consumer confidence affects big ticket items, uh, uh, decisions to purchase refrigerators, mm-hmm. any. Yep. And of course, a home is one of the biggest ticket items you can have. Yep. But then again, there is another factor in that decision, such as we are living with two bedrooms and we just had our third child. So then there becomes a a needs-driven part of the decision. So how closely linked is consumer confidence to the decision to buy a house? Is it more important in the decision to buy a refrigerator or the decision to buy a house? Well, my parents to the third child would say, well, there'd be three of you in the bedroom then. <laughs> so well, that, was, that was a different time. <laughs> right. um, no question, the bigger the purchase, the more the commitment of the household to that. And the less certain they are about the future, the less likely they are to make that transaction. But there are forcing things. You get a job change. And so you have to have a job to have any income to do anything. If that job change requires a relocation, you're going to make that move, whether or not your attitude is one of confidence, because it's the job that you need to follow, right? So uh, buying a refrigerator is a lot less of a commitment than buying a house. And so I I would say you can can kind of uh, rank them by the difficulty, but it is impacted by the need. If the refrigerator dies, you're going to have to make a move, right? And so if your job changes, you're going to have to make a move, uh, potentially. So uh, it's a mix of things. Uh, Consumer attitudes are an indicator, but they're not in and of themselves a driver of action that the household will take. All right. So, so Doug, um, coming back to one of the data points you mentioned on uh, on projecting that home sales may start slowing in 2020. I want to tie that back for our for our audience, primarily mortgage lenders and, and real estate professionals. Mm-hmm. So, so bringing it back to the industry, um, we're, we're continuing to see some uh, real estate broker M&A, some of that fire sales, some of that growth um, driven. Um, we've seen at least two big headlines of non-bank lenders making uh, four-figure hiring moves and bringing on a lot more originators. How do you see some of these uh, like bullish industry moves in relation to the economic reality? And uh, I mean, well, with a with a ten-year treasury at one point five, it means the mortgage rate is maybe a three point three. That's a thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage, and at that rate, there's a trillion and a half dollars of existing mortgages that are in the money for refinancing. So if you're going to be in the refinance game, you're going to have to have two things that will impact that. One is the number of people they have to, that are loan officers, processors, underwriters, and all that, that, that are doing things that can't be done electronically. And the second one is whether you can make those investments in technology pay off to increase the throughput. In the past, what has happened when there's been that big of an opportunity because the industry couldn't gear up fast enough, spreads simply stayed wider as a load management issue and rates didn't come down as far on the mortgage side as they did on the uh, on the treasury side. Today, part of what's keeping that spread a little wider than you would think is the volatility that's taking place on this trade issue and its impact on rates and the yield curve structure uh, and in fact, today, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about in the macro space is inverted yield curves. Uh, 
actually part of the mortgage curve is inverted as 15-year fixed-rate mortgages are now cheaper than 5-1 arms and 1-1 arms. I don't know if that's ever happened before, but it exists now. Uh, and so that is an opportunity in the fixed rate space, which is where most people want to be anyway. The 30-year fixed rate is not quite there, but it's pretty close to the 1-1 one, one arm, which suggests most people are going to default to that 30-year fixed rate um, and refinance into that. Which is great stability <coughs> for the market. Mm -hmm. of it improves good, cash flow at the household level, which exactly. is going to support consumption. So let me, let me ask you, Doug, about mortgage rates. Um, and this is crystal ball gazing. However, I've known you a long time, and you're probably the best crystal ball gazer out there. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with mortgage rates, and what's going to drive that? You know, I, we won a forecast competition once, and the, they sent me a crystal ball, so I actually do have a crystal ball, although it doesn't really tell me. So the question was, what's going to happen to mortgage rates? Uh, well, just because the Fed cuts rates at the short end of the curve does not mean long rates come down. In fact, if that were to generate greater growth expectations, longer rates might actually move up. So our forecast, which has uh, typically been lower over the last several years than most of the other folks that forecast in that space, and it's actually been the right place to be, um, suggests that where we are today is within a range maybe 25 basis points in either direction of it kind of where i would be expecting rates to be for a while especially if as if as our forecast suggests growth slows into next year that doesn't suggest there'll be upward pressure on rates right unless it were that trade tariffs were to bleed through into inflation that was my next and question. increase inflation expectations. We have not seen inflation rise we as have. a result of the trade wars yet. We have not. Do you expect to see that in coming months? Our forecast for inflation is in uh, 2020 that we just get back to the Fed's target. But mind you, we've the Fed has only achieved its target in about five of the last 25 years. It's not a very good indicator. If you're a baseball player, you're not in the league anymore, batting 200. <laughs> well, Doug, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, I think we should do every podcast in person now. This is <laughs> so much more fun to get get in depth and spend yeah, some real time with, with you. you. And uh, I know that our our audience um, over the over the long run will will have a huge benefit from the time you invested with us today and our, our listeners for today's podcast. I think we'll all leave. Uh, this episode and the, the season one finale, much better prepared to continue building their mortgage and real estate businesses and make smarter decisions um, as we navigate through these tough times of a short supply and changing demographics. And uh, But fortunately, a low rate environment, as you project, will continue. Oh, so thanks for the invite. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for your time. You bet. And folks, that is a wrap on the season finale of the Housing News Podcast. We'll be coming back to you in late September to kick off season two, and we're already developing a pretty remarkable roster of guests to help us add more perspective to the news that our Housing Wire news team is, is covering. If you enjoyed a single minute of the season, please, please, please rate us on iTunes or your favorite platform. We read every single comment and we're hungry for more feedback and ideas. So, so please go on to iTunes, uh, give us a rating, leave some comments. It would mean so much to us and only help us keep improving the show and bringing you the guests and information that you're looking for. One final thank you to Alcena Lloyd, a reporter at Housing Wire and the producer of this show. And thank you to our season one launch partner, Blend. If you're interested in sponsoring season two, shoot me a note on LinkedIn or email us at sales at housingwire.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next season.